we are reliving what happened after the Civil War when we first won the right to vote. And after Reconstruction and the troops were pulled back uh, after the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, there was a period called reclamation where we lost the right to vote. That was the first big white lash. Mind you, we were electing black elected officials throughout the country, throughout the South. Former enslaved people were in the Senate and House, local elected officials in, in, in the legislatures, in Mississippi, the Deep South, the, the, the Cotton Belt, all of that. And there was a white lash. After a grueling several weeks of waiting for states to declare winner of the general election and ill-timed lawsuits contesting the validity of the voting process in Pennsylvania and Michigan, we finally have a president and vice president, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Our political panel, Willow Kelly from The Mo Kelly Show, Mark Thompson from the Make It Plain podcast, and Professor Saladin Ambar will dissect the election and what it means for the nation and the black community. So let's get to it. As you know, we had uh, President-elect Biden got over, uh, what, 79 million votes, the most ever. But on the flip side, Donald Trump got 73 million. Uh, in kind of the breakdown, it's split. We're split down the middle. You know, we on the coast went strongly Democratic, but in the middle of the U U.S., it was Republican. So let, let's break it down. What, what's, what's going on there? And we'll start with you, uh, Mo. Well, Big picture, I thought that um, America reminded us who it is. I think back to what Michelle Obama said, that being president reveals who you are. And so Donald Trump revealed who he was, if you didn't already know, over the past four years. And then we had a chance to vote to see, given what we had learned about Donald Trump, whether we wanted four more years of that. And some 73 million said, yes, sign me up for four more years. And I think that revealed who we are. Uh, being president, mm -hmm. Donald Trump revealed who he is, and we revealed who we are as a country. I think it's almost like a pyrrhic victory that Joe Biden won, and it didn't necessarily send the message to the world that we are done with Trumpism. We're not done with Trumpism. In fact, I would say it's not just about Donald Trump. He is a symbol of a larger feeling and movement in this country, which I believe is anti-Black, anti-decency, anti-democracy, and it is now in vogue to be ignorant and deny democracy on every level and science and facts. That's who we are as a nation. Saladin, do you, you agree with that? Or anything else to add? Sure, no, I do agree. I think um, Willie is right. You know, there's a, a direct correlation between the demographic changes and the rise of a minority population that's soon to be a majority population with the antagonism towards democracy on the part of many whites in this country. And so, you know, I think dealing with those fears, uh, stoking those fears has certainly been what, what Trumpism and Trump has been about, but they've been there and growing all along. And so what we're, what we're witnessing now is this sort of tipping point in which democracy loses its appeal when groups, frankly, white voices, which have been decisive, may prove to no longer be decisive all of a sudden you know, democratic institutions and processes are no longer valued. And so we're going to have to deal with that, not just with Trump and a post-presidency, but for the foreseeable future. Will, will white Americans value democracy 
if their voices are no longer decisive? I think that's a fundamental question. But let's let's take areas like like Wisconsin or Michigan, for that matter, uh, which flipped this time around. So, I mean, and I don't know the breakdowns. Yes, we are uh, as black people are prevalent in this, you know, in the major cities, but not out in the suburbs. So. What would you say, you know, in those and also in Arizona, where we did flip flip it this time around? Uh, Mark, you want to take that? Did Mo say ignorance is in vogue? Is that what Mo said? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> That's real. You know, um, Reverend Barber and I like to to preach the same sermon. There's some, some dispute about whether he stole it from me or I stole it from him, but it's cool. We are reliving what happened after the Civil War when we first won the right to vote and after reconstruction and the troops were pulled back uh, after the Hayes-Tilden compromise, there was a period called reclamation where we lost the right to vote. That was the first big white lash. Mind you, we were electing black elected officials throughout the country, throughout the South, former enslaved people were in the Senate and House, local elected officials in, in, in the legislatures, in Mississippi, the deep South, the, the, the cotton belt, all of that. And there was a white lash. We know that Trump's victory in 2016 was just that. And now what we've seen, because it is disturbing, even though we won um, over 70 million people voted for an avowed white supremacist, um, misogynist, uh, accused rapist, homophobe, xenophobe, that says something about America. And, and I'll tell you what, what it says that's the most troubling, is that people voted for a white supremacist that is killing white people in a pandemic. Now, mm-hmm. I'm sure all of us here, like I do, I know some white supremacists who don't kill white people. I can introduce them to some of them. But they voted for one that is allowing them to die because of his negligence in a pandemic. That's Jim Jones level. At least Jim Jones had Bible and Kool-Aid. Trump doesn't offer anyone anything. And so it's almost like a a, a death cult. In terms of what's happening in all the states, once again, we're seeing the power of the African-American vote. And if we look at the states that Biden won, we're a great deal of population in Georgia because we were enslaved in Georgia. We're a great deal of population in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania because we escaped from Georgia on Underground Railroad to go to Philadelphia and and Pennsylvania. We're a great deal of the population in Michigan and Wisconsin because even before the Civil War, the farthest America had gone west was Michigan and Wisconsin. And after the Northwest Ordinance, we as African-Americans were some of the early pioneers in Michigan and Wisconsin. And then after World War II, as a result of the Great Black Migration, we went back again to Michigan and Wisconsin. And during the Great Black Migration, we went to Arizona and Nevada. And in Arizona, Nevada, Michigan and Wisconsin, not to mention Illinois and other places, we built America's industry. So because of the movement of our people, we have those votes. Our Latino sisters and brothers came through in just about every state except Florida, few exceptions in some counties in Texas Mm -hmm. that we got to figure that out. But, you know, I made the comment and I was corrected, Keith, about the suburbs. There are more black folk 
living in the suburbs than we realize in some of these states, particularly in Georgia. So I think the assumption mm -hmm. we make is suburban votes are white, but there's a large number of black votes in the suburbs. And where they aren't black votes, we're talking about white women. And white women were sick of Trump's foolishness and he knew it. That's why he was begging at the end, white women don't leave me. I need you white women, stay with me. <laughs> because he knew that they were tired of it. He was trying to trick them and scare them with MS-13s coming to your house and, and all this. Now what are they doing Warnock, with Warnock? They're trying to scare white women with uh, uh, Jeremiah Wright, Wright and charges of an anti-Semitism when it comes to uh, Warnock. But look, Kelly Loeffler didn't even get a third of the votes in that primary. Warnock did. And so that says something. I think we've got a, a, a good chance uh, to win this runoff in Georgia. I know when we talked about the ignorance, but then, but one of the things that stood out to me is our African-American men. So we represented about 33% of the vote uh, for uh, people of color, but about 26% of the black men who had a high school, school diploma voted for Trump, 22% of black men with bachelor's degrees, and 20% of black men with advanced degrees voted for Trump. So what, what's up with that? Uh, I'll jump in on this one. I, I think we should be careful not to conflate a moment and make it into a, some sort of movement. Uh, I think each election is unto itself. And I think this election, as far as African-American men who might have drifted towards Trump, that had to do with that individual and the specific uh, factors of this election. But we know that black women are the engine of the Democratic Party. And we know that black women vote at a higher rate than black men. Because a small percentage, and let's keep it in perspective, if if 90% um, of black folks are still voting Democratic and, and they peeled off 2% of black men, mm -hmm. what are we really talking about? So although you may have had figureheads like Ice Cube and, and um, 50 Cent and Lil Pump who didn't even vote and Kanye West who really is not to be taken seriously in a, in a voter engagement sense. I don't think that this portends to a trend um, over a long period of time because I would say most about Trump is about Trump himself, not an agenda, not policy, not legislation. And going back to what Mark was saying as far as it being cult-like, this is about they were voting against their political interests many times by voting for Trump, if they understood the complexity of the issues. But the appeal of Trump really doesn't have to do with legislation or policy. People love Trump because he makes them feel okay with their own prejudices, prejudices or dislikes. They like who he is because he dislikes who they dislike by and large. They like him because they are like him. And it's about if he doesn't like black people, then that's good enough for me. I don't need anything. I don't care about the judges. I don't care about the tax cut. He talks mess about black and brown people. And I think they're the scourge of this country. So therefore, I'm with Trump. Let me, let me just say, you know, related to, to what Brother Mark was saying about changes in, in, in voting and, and, and swinging these states um, with the black vote, um, you know, in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, other places. You know, I, I, I do want to draw attention to something that maybe hasn't been getting quite the coverage it needs, and that's that white women voted for Trump, according to exit polls, something on the order of 55 percent. The idea that maybe two or three percent more uh, black men voted for Trump. Yeah, it's something we can talk about, but um, it, it, it raises lots of questions about the white vote and white women who seemingly had ample reason to be appalled at, at Donald Trump's behavior. 
And it suggests that, you know, racial identity is far more critical than political pundits and political scientists may have thought than racial identity or, or than gender identity. Um, and I think that that's an important element going forward. And so, yes, you know, the other thing I'll say is that we got some structural problems, you know, in the Senate, places like California are far underrepresented. Right now, Democrats constitute a minority in the Senate, but represent millions and millions more voters per state. Um, you look at the House with the gerrymandering, you look at the Electoral College, you know, Biden's on the order of 4% uh, more victory, uh, a margin of victory than, than Trump. Six and maybe six and a half million more votes to come. Uh, and yet somehow it's perceived as a narrow margin of victory, which is only to say that um, our votes are watered down by a relic of a system that is racially tilted towards white rural voters. And that's not going away anytime soon either. And so I think um, it just, we just need to highlight the fact that we're in a a game where you've got to score. It's like you got to beat the spread <laughs> every time to get the win. You know, okay, you can't just get the win. You got to beat the spread. And it's another burden right. on black voters moving forward. Well, I would agree. I don't trust the exit polls right now because normally exit polls are applicable in a more traditional election scenario. This year was not millions of people submitted absentee ballots. And I don't think you can exit poll those people accurately. So I think we have to wait a little while for that to be figured out. As far as black men are concerned, I was prepared for the number of black men to go up because we as black men were targeted more for voter suppression and disinformation more than any other group. And people took advantage of the history of sexism and misogyny in this country, much of which is in our own community as black people, much of which existed in the civil rights movement, women weren't acknowledged as leaders, much of which is also rooted in the culture, as Reverend Willie Wilson has said in Washington, D.C., rooting the culture of the black church, you know, for years. And even to this day, some black churches have not acknowledged women in the pulpit. So here's what some of us think has been going on. There is, because you wonder, well, how did Barack Obama even win? I think that it's not just true with the Trump people, Mo, it's true with all of us. People are motivated to vote by certain personalities that they admire. For example, I lived in Washington, D.C. for 25 years. There are some people that would only vote in elections when Marion Barry was on the ballot. He got people to vote, just him being there. When Marin went on the ballot off the election city council, folk weren't interested. So for black men, without that black man on the ballot, Barack Obama, having been comfortable with that um, for eight years, then we've got to do other things to inspire black men out. On the other hand, um, there's a group that is now being called the hidden deplorables. Those are the Trump voters that won't turn out unless he's on the ballot. So there's a theory we will probably win Georgia because Trump's not on the ballot, you know, and so those hidden deplorables may not come out. But I think that's the case with this. And we saw black women show up for Kamala. And let's face it, at least 80 percent of black men voted for Kamala Harris. Right. But I think we have to build on that. And if we can figure out a way to continue, we have to start today for the next two years in the midterms, for the next four years when Kamala runs for president to educate black men and pull them away from the suppression 
and the disinformation that is targeting them on social media. Because and, and then these jokers, Ice Cube, what are we doing there? How do you record one of the most iconic songs in the history of music, hip hop, F the police? The police union organizes boycotts of NWA because of it. And then you go endorse the man who is the darling of the police unions. That, that doesn't make sense. And so we need to point out to people the inherent contradiction and the Uncle Tomism in that kind of behavior. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to touch upon that. And that's probably a much deeper show. But I wanted to uh, segue to you know Kamala Harris since we mentioned uh, mentioned her. What are the strengths that she ha you think she'll bring uh, to the to the White House, and what key initiatives do you think she'll be working on as the Vice President? Wow, that's a great question because in many ways I think Biden, his own Secretary of State, in a sense, I mean he'll have so the foreign policy initiatives uh, that he brought and strength that he brought to the Obama White House, his um, you know familiarity with Congress, he brought you know he doesn't necessarily need that in her. What I think. He can have some help with her, and it's certainly issues of policing, issues of the criminal justice system. Obviously, there's going to be an attorney general. I believe it'll be someone uh, uh, that, that's going to have to be targeting civil rights and, and racial justice for sure. But I think that's an area that you can work on in a kind of um, portfolio that, that will unfold over the next few months. But it's likely to be related, I think, to maybe for her to be speaking about situating herself uh, possibly for a 2024 run, working on a record uh, of criminal justice that frankly, uh, you know, many black folk have had issue with uh, in her uh, days back in California. Uh, but that this is an opportunity for her, not as an attorney general, but as vice president to, you know, bring, bring to bear a lot of those issues and, and take that into her portfolio. So that would be something I would anticipate. I have no idea what Biden is going to have her work on. But to me, that seems a logical choice. I think it's been said by both of uh, these gentlemen. I agree that they're going, I think she's going to have a more prominent role than previous vice presidents, if only because they do have to position her to possibly run in 2024, well, correction, most likely run in 2024. And to that end, she needs to have some specific legislation that either she champions, that she uh, writes or somehow create some bipartisan support for that she can claim credit for moving into 2024. I think that's fundamentally important and also would help be um, a payoff to the black community. It's like, hey, you supported us. This is something we got done for you. Wink, wink. It's not for you, but it's for you. And I, and, and I think that's something that's going to be very necessary for Madam Vice President-elect to be able to champion. And yes, she'll have to navigate the waters of not taking too much of the spotlight and shine, because the, the, the vice president is supposed to be secondary to the president. But there has to be a strategic uh, plan in place to get her ready for 2024. Invariably, she's going to have to be out there as the presumptive nominee for the party. I just don't see two terms for Joe Biden. Yeah, Joe will be 82 in 2024. And, and not to discriminate against older people, but I think that's a lot. I, to, to put Joe Biden at 82 up against Trump at, what, 78, because Trump's definitely going to try to run. I think Kamala has to be prepared. And I think in terms of addressing black men again, she must address the criminal justice issue. Now, I think part of the propaganda and disinformation about her record was, was the problem. A lot about her record was manufactured and distorted. It wasn't as bad as it was made out to be. But 
it still would help for her to take the initiative and to do some bold things when it comes to criminal justice, when it comes to African-American men. And she already started doing that in the Senate. I mean, she was leading the charge for bail reform, no bail, those types of things. Um, she needs to, you know, needs to be continue to stay out front on that and be outspoken. It will also make a difference. Mo makes a good point about legislation. It's even more than that. If we win these runoffs in Georgia, she will be the tie-breaking and deciding vote in the Senate. So she actually will be in the catbird seat and responsible for any positively passed Senate legislation from the White House. She'll be wearing two hats. She'll be not only vice president, but she'll be the Senate tiebreaker. And I think that would, would bode well for her. And listen, I'm gonna be straight up about it. Black women have been saving this country the, the past couple of election cycles. Right. We as black men need to support black women. White women need to support black women. And the black woman to support is the black woman that black women are supporting. And that's gonna be Kamala Harris in 2024. So everybody needs to, needs to get in formation as Beyonce would say. And yeah, and I know that's since we've gone that way and with Stacey Abrams having such a very grassroots, strong uh, representation to get the vote out in Georgia, uh, would there even be an opportunity where she may, is there a way that she might vault ahead of Kamala Harris because of that fact for president? No, I, I admire Stacey. You know, at times I think we were a little frustrated because we, some of us felt like Stacey should have run for Senate and that would have just been, the ball would have been knocked out of the park. But Stacey's been consistent. When she was a little girl, she went to the governor's mansion and was treated poorly. She wants to occupy the governor's mansion in Georgia. That's it. I think she can. That election comes up in a couple of years. We all need to support her. She will help a Kamala Harris win the White House with Georgia. Now, after Stacey Abrams serves her term as governor, we thought we were looking at only one black person in the White House with Obama. So we'll have Obama, Harris, and then after Stacey serves two terms as Georgia governor, Stacey can run for president herself. So I don't think she needs to compete with Kamala right now. That'll be our next black president. We can have black presidents from now on if we want to. <laughs> yeah, let, me, let me jump in here. And, and yeah, this, go ahead. This applies to Trump as well as to, uh, to Kamala Harris. And, and I think, and, and it's this, that people like power. And people may not be so, so kind as to bow out gracefully and say, Kamala, it's your turn, it's 2024. Donald, it's your time again in 2024. I could easily see, uh, and it may, it may not happen, but four years is a long time, I could easily see an Andrew Cuomo. You, pick your, you name your, your uh, governor or a Democratic senator who, who may feel like, yeah, you, you're welcome to compete against me in the Democratic primary in 2024. But um, it may not be a given. You can just roll this tape back in four years, and I'm happy to tell you if I'm wrong. And the same is true for Trump. Right now, everybody's assuming that Trump will you know, lead the party uh, in exile for four years, and that the Ted Cruz's and the you know, Nikki Haley's of the world are just going to just let another four to eight years of their lives go by without power. And something to me as a political scientist, but just as a human being, says, hell, people are not like that. <laughs> there will be somebody to contend against Trump. And I believe um, there may well be, depending on how things go in the Biden first two, three years, there may well be someone, it could be someone from the left, the Bernie type supporter, not Sanders himself, but someone like that, who will rise up and say, hey, you know what, I, I would like to stand in for a primary. I'm not saying it would be helpful to the Democratic right. Party, 
But um, I'm not so sure that it's Kamala's. She's going to have to build a record. I think this is the point. She's going to have to build a record and do some things to stave off potential contenders. There's some things going to have to be done on her part to make folks say, well, she's got she's got a fundraising arm. She's got these accomplishments. Clearly, we need to rally behind her. Um, she has some work to do to make that happen. Let's talk about the president uh, elect because Joe Biden and, you know, in his acceptance speech, he mentioned uh, that, hey, I've got your back, black community. Uh, thank you for having my back, and I will have yours. So what initiatives is he going to have to uh, make good on uh, for us to say, look, you've got our back? We know that criminal justice reform is going to have to be in that equation somewhere. And it's hard to forecast what that's going to be because we don't even know what this country is going to look like in six, seven months. Just in a way that President Barack Obama he wanted to do health care, but he still had to deal with the economic downturn and the Great Recession. And then, and, and this is something that Barack Obama had, and we touched upon this, but we didn't really get into it. Barack Obama, when he came into office, he had 365 electoral college votes. He had a gain of 21 seats in the House. He had a gain of eight seats in the Senate, which brought it to like maybe 55 or 56. He had a working majority in both of the houses and more of a wind at his back to get things done. I am not sure, and this is saying nothing of what happens in Georgia in January. I'm not sure whether Joe Biden, especially in this hyperpartisan environment, will be able to get through a signature legislation. And he only has two years because we know when the midterms come, and this is something I want to talk about with uh, Stacey Abrams, I hope she does run for governor because that will help get out the vote in a midterm election, I believe it's 2022, that governor's seat is up. So I would want her out there to help uh, mobilize black folks. I don't know if Joe Biden talking about promises or delivering, I don't know if he'll have that opportunity in the first two years. And then after the first two years, all bets may be off depending on the makeup of the House and the Senate. I would agree, you know, when Joe Biden said, you've had my back, I'll have yours speaking to the black community. I don't know, we've not heard that from most black or white politicians. In fact, I call most black people I know and said to them, I never heard y'all talk to me that way. White Joe Biden said he had my back. That's important and he should because he would not be there without the black vote. That's just a fact. The first test is happening now. Rahm Emanuel is lobbying hard for a cap position. So the first thing Joe Biden needs to do to show he has our back is not give Rahm Emanuel a damn thing. He covered up <laughs> yeah. the death of Laquan McDonald. He should not even be considered for a cabinet position, Rahm Emanuel, the former um, mayor of Chicago. I'm a little more optimistic than Mo about the Senate, though, especially if we win in Georgia. The Obama Senate majority wasn't a true majority because you still had the phenomenon of the blue dog Democrats. Watch this, y'all. Who recruited the blue dog Democrats and started the blue dog Democratic movement? Rahm Emanuel. That came from him. He sabotaged his own president. And these were blue dogs who really, which really meant Democratic name only because they were all effectively Republicans. And so Obama didn't have a true majority. We've gotten rid of the blue dogs. Even Democrats who, who were blue dogs back then are blue dogs no more, like, like Manchin in West Virginia. He's been more consistent voting for Democrats the past two years than he ever has before. So again, if we get 50-50 and people realize the stakes, 
even moderate Democrats know the consequences of what happened when, when McConnell and Trump were in charge. I think they'll all fall in line, give Biden those 50 votes. And then there are a lot of things he doesn't need to send it for. There are a lot of things he can do to create jobs by building infrastructure. He can do a lot, criminal justice reform, some of the things we mentioned, uh, the, the Voting Rights Act, the George Floyd police reform bill, H.R. 40, the reparations bill. These are all the things Joe Biden can do. And if he does not have the Senate by January 20th, he can do that with the stroke of his pen uh, in the executive office. He's going to have to show that he is going to he's going to move forward and and do some things to say, look, I've seen some of the problems that's that's gone on in the country, especially for people of color. And I'm going to try and rectify that. So that's very, uh, very important. One of the things also I wanted to mention, kind of the flip side, I know Trump got a lot. He got a lot of votes. He got 70 plus million votes. The races were much closer than I think a lot of the political pundits had uh, talked about. So, Saladin, what, what, why did they get it wrong? What are some of the, what do you think uh, were some of the reasons behind that? I hate to be crude about it. You know, I, I've been, I'm teaching a course in American political thought right now. We're reading some Herman Melville and, you know, he's got a line in Moby Dick where he says, we still have not solved the incantation of this whiteness and why it appeals with so much power to the soul. You know, I think Trump, you know, has in effect rhetorically pushed the white population, particularly the conservative or, you know, theoretically conservative or at least Republican population up against the wall, you know, used everything at his disposal. Anti-Muslim rhetoric, the caravans coming to kill y'all, suburban ladies, get out of Wegmans, they're coming to get you. He used everything at his disposal to put them in the place where in many of them, their hearts were already, which is a kind of fear of blackness, a kind of fear of uh, becoming a racial minority. And I think um, what you're seeing is the result of that. And more important than, the, than those people is the Republican leadership recognizing we can't criticize Trump because that leadership or that, that populace is there backing this. They may not be so uh, radicalized towards Trump, these Republican officials, but they see where the masses of their voters are. And so there very few of them are in opposition to that. They're going to go along with it. I just I think it is a it's the kind of racial populism that we see worldwide. I just pull the lens back a little bit. This is not simply an American phenomenon. I think that's one thing I could say and add to the conversation. This is happening in France. This is happening in Hungary. This is happening in the UK with Brexit. This is let's get out of this international system, you know. Hell, Winston Churchill said uh, a good slogan for conservatives is keep England white. That was 60 years ago. Well, that's what they're returning to. This is a global ph phenomenon where there's a fear of the browning and darkening of these formerly largely white majority populations. It's just that Trump decided that the key to getting these uh, votes was just to be outright with it, to just not hide it or sh sugarcoat it. He can't intellectualize it. So he's just going to be himself and brutally you know, stab at the heart of what's afflicting this country. I don't have a big grand intellectual answer other than to say this is a global reality. It's going to be with us. And um, I think, you know, uh, as Melville said, we haven't solved it. We still haven't solved it. The way to solve it is through organizing and mobilizing and also educating and, and letting people know. We, we don't produce as a, as a people in this country historically. We don't produce the Timothy McVeigh's right. or the Dylan <laughs> Roofs. 
that's not that's not our legacy. Our legacy is not bombing America and torturing people and you know going on killing sprees of revenge. That's not our legacy. We've had resistance movements for sure, but we have not been a vengeful community historically, and that's what people fear. We need to preach nonviolence to whites as much as it's <laughs> preached to us. Right. You know, that's the other. That's the other element. You know um, that needs to be remedied. But that's what Trump is is doing. That's what the reality is. All these millions of people, um, they were half afraid to begin with, and that that fear is just stoked, and it's been permissible. I, I guess. Pardon me for going on, but it's just become more permissible. You know, I have children in school. They've heard the N word more times, uh, and they go to school in Ohio, uh, a northern state. You know, um, you know, 25 minutes out of uh, one of the most liberal towns in, in all of the country. And guess what? You know, they're dealing with it at school at their tender age. So, but you know, that wasn't so common just a few years ago. It's just become more permissible, and so we've got to deal with that as well. Mm. Anything to add on that, Mo? Yeah, there are a couple things I want to go back and get. Something that Saladin said as far as Trump in 2024, I, I think it would be a mistake to think that he's going to be around in the sense of having the hold on America in 2024 for a couple of reasons. There's a lot of life which is going to be lived between now and then. There are going to be a lot of lawsuits. Um, we don't know what his health is going to be like in four years. And this is part of the reason why, going speak, speaking about permissibility and why certain Republicans haven't spoken out, I don't believe it's in fear of Donald Trump. It's about recruiting that base for when Donald Trump is absent in that space. Names like Tom Cotton, uh, obviously Ted Cruz and Nikki Haley. Someone wants that voting base because I don't think they perceive that Trump is going to be viable in four years. And I don't think he'll be able to hold on to that voting base for four years. So if you listen to the rhetoric out of Tom, Tom Cotton's mouth specifically, you can tell he's directly appealing to those voters to take them. And, and as far as 2024, I would expect him to be running. I expect Nikki Haley, to your point, Saladin, to be running um, in absentia of Donald Trump and hopefully recruited his base away from him because I don't think that he's going to be a viable alternative after all the, the lawsuits and the criminal exposure that he'll have to go through as a private citizen and not having a bill bar to protect him. He's going to be a very different person, at best, I believe, a paper tiger. And as far as the world, what's going on in the world, and since most people don't understand history or read history, what Donald Trump did is not unlike what Teddy Roosevelt did 100 years ago talking about nationalism. He used some of the same rhetoric, the, the, the same sentiments, the same statements even. And if anything, Trump is not new. He just tapped into something that was always there, someone that we always were. And then because it became successful, then I, I think people said, well, if it's successful, I can go ahead and take off my hood now. I can run around the street and, let, and just say mm. it. I don't have to hide my face or my identity. And I, and I think it speaks to Trump is just a man, but there will be someone to fill that space not named Trump. And I think there will be, I agree with all that's been said, there is going to be a vying for control of the Republican Party. There are Republicans. Some of them are still no good, but there are those who do not feel that Trump should be in total control of that party. And remember, he they didn't like him to begin with. He literally hijacked the Republican Party from what was going on. So um, I think there's going to be a vying for that. Saladin mentioned around the world. Look, dismissal of Trump from the White House is inspiring movements around the world to do the same thing in some of these countries where there's right-wingism 
Um, we know, again, we're dealing with an era of disinformation. That's all Brexit was. The same thing mm -hmm. that happened in 2016 mm -hmm. was precisely what happened um, in Britain when it comes to Brexit. So I'm, I'm hopeful that this is going to be an indication and an inspiration uh, for change around the world. And like I said, I think that there are people who are going to um, be ready to challenge Donald Trump and want to take the Republican Party back. I mean, I don't think we still will ever support the Republican Party will ever act in our best interests. But I think people are, are tired of being beholden to him. I mean, you have people right now who are in denial that he even lost. I mean, I mean, how ridiculous. And you notice the people who are going against him are the people who see a future for themselves. You know, because you don't want that on your doggone resume that you were, you don't want about to pull a clip up that you were supporting something that just wasn't, well, right. he didn't really lose. He did lose. Yeah, and plus another thing we, we, we hadn't really touched upon, he won't really be able to command the airwaves yeah. uh, and control the airwaves like he did. I mean, every day, right. He there was always something about, something that he did. I mean, on progressive as well as conservative uh, TV. So won't he just, for the most part, fall out of favor? I mean, we're just, we'll be more concerned about did he get convicted or not? But for the most part, he's not going to be able to have you know, that same uh, command of the TV. The reason he had command, and he never should have, is because mainstream corporate media loves the train wreck. If it bleeds, it leads. They were fascinated with him. They wouldn't give anybody else that much coverage. And so he made a lot of money from mainstream media, uh, even some media that we see as progressive. They made money off of covering him every five minutes. Hopefully, they'll just be covering his trials. I mean, let's face it, 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 as you said, Mo, he probably, he needs to be in jail in four years. I mean, he may not even be eligible to run. And I'm going to tell you something else, too. If all of us, Big Macs, three times a day, we'd be dead anyway. So he may not live uh, <laughs> another four years. But I, I hope you're right, Keith. It, it's just... We've noticed it lately, they've pulled back from him, but there's somehow this, this fascination with him and his foolishness. It sells, it, it, it keeps people tuned in, but hopefully they'll realize that viewers are sick of looking at him. We need a break from Donald Trump. Keith, I would just add one thing. The bully pulpit is real. And once he leaves that bully pulpit, he can't sign an executive order and just turn everything upside down. He can't send out a tweet and tank the stock market or a specific company. The things and tools that he had as a, at his uh, disposal or has right now, he's not going to have in 55 days or so. And so the types of things that he did before, he won't be able to do anymore. Can he do the, the call in to Fox and Friends? Of course. Will it have the same impact? No. Will he be able to call a press conference at a moment's notice? And will the networks cover it? No because he's not the president of the United States anymore. He's just a private citizen who's acting like a fool, a damn fool at that. So there are certain things that he will not be able to take with him when he leaves that office. And I don't want to overstate how much influence he's going to have because he won't be a president. He won't be a presidential candidate who is running for office. So there's really no reason to listen to him other than he's a former president just barking from the peanut gallery which only has limited value. When John McCain lost to Barack Obama in 2008, for the next eight years, they put John McCain 
on a Sunday morning talk show every Sunday. There's a fascination the corporate media has with losing Republicans, not losing Democrats. You know, when Walter Mondale and Dukakis and Jimmy Carter and John Kerry all lost, they were vanquished. You never heard from them again. But what, what the right wing has done successfully is gaslight all of the media by charging them with being the liberal media. So what the liberal media, so-called liberal media does, it really isn't liberal. They co compensate for the gaslighting and give a disproportionate amount of coverage and false equivalency to the right wing. So we have to be careful about that. Remember, Trump made it. He was calling in every show in 2016. Just They would just put him on. He wouldn't even have to be on TV. He could just call in. I hope Chuck Todd and the rest of them don't fall for that again. I, I pray they don't. But I'll be honest. They have a history of doing that. If you all remember, John McCain was on TV every Sunday. I would say one thing. He still was a sitting senator. And, and they didn't really talk to Mitt Romney all that much either. And he was a losing candidate as well. Yes, I, I agree with everything you said. But I, the only distinction I would make was Senator McCain still was an active participant and could be a foil directly to Barack Obama as president, as like uh, chair of the Armed Services Committee and, and what have you, in a way that Mitt Romney couldn't. I, I just don't think that Trump will have the same type of allure because, okay, the fascination is not the same. We know who this guy is. And I think that a, a lot of times he got that media coverage because we're like, ah, he's running for president. This guy's a fool and he's calling in. And I don't think anyone expected him to win. I think it's going to be different on the other side. I really hope it will be, at least from so. the, the non-conservative media side. I mean, I hope so. I mean, Don Lemon won't have a platform if he doesn't get a chance to uh, talk about Trump and others. You know, those that 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 where that was the center of their uh, their telecast. And, right. and like, why is Rick Santorum still on the TV? You know, so <laughs> I, I hope you're right, though, Mo. We just we're going to have to be vigilant. Mark, as soon as you said that, I, I, I could see Rick Santorum's face <laughs> in my mind's eye. <laughs> well, let me just say this. I, I, I agree with everything that's been said, but I will say, you know, this is, I think, it comes down to vying for that media attention within the right-wing media. To a certain degree, you know, the Sunday talk shows there, they matter on the, you know, people, perhaps we watch them, you know, with our New York Times laid out. But most people are not getting their news that way. And certainly the right-wing folk are, you know, they got OWN now, they got Fox. And I think obviously the big elephant in the room is is whether or not you know, Newsmax and is wh whether Trump's going to you know truly establish his own network, continue to create his own alternative universe. I mean that's the reality. They have their own universe right now, and what Trump mastered was the ability. Not he never won a majority of the American public. He won a he didn't win a majority of the Republican primary. He won the plurality. We got a plurality there, and that was a divided race. They chopped that thing up, and he kept his 40% the whole way out. And then on the presidential level, he didn't get a majority of votes against Hillary Clinton, and, and he, but he got a plurality. So he's learned that, you know, if I can just keep that base and take them with me. Now, now Mo's right about this. This is the key. Can I stay out of jail the next four years? There's a whole cult of uh, personality out there just, you know, oozing for him. Uh, and that's the shocking thing and, and the frightening thing, but it's the reality that uh, that universe is there waiting for him and he will find ways to cultivate it. And I think the question is which Republicans who wanna be president one day and don't wanna wait in line another four, eight years will stand up and try to contend with that and buy against him. That's the question. Uh, will they just you know, be the continuing sycophants that they've been? That would be an interesting thing to watch. Uh, so as we kind of close out uh, the show, I'd love to 
everyone uh, kind of give their thoughts on, I guess, the year to come. Are you optimistic now that we're, we're going to have a change in the presidency as far as um, just people of color, just the state of our nation? It's a, it's a hell of a question, uh, given what we've been through. But I, I will say I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful uh, because Black people have survived and thrived and managed to be creative and self-loving throughout all manner of hell that has been thrown at us. Yeah. And this has just been another episode in a long line. I continue to be impressed and startled by our willingness to love one another. Uh, we do some, you know, some hellish negative things towards each other at times, but we also have persisted in showing great self-love and, and a capacity for to be creative and hopeful. I'm hopeful because, you know, we have proven that American democracy can survive with with the premise of democracy intact, while other people are jettisoning it and getting rid of it and you know, uh, we've been there. And so uh, I'm hopeful because of us. And, and I see it in my family and I see it in my friends. I see it in you brothers. So, I mean, it, as cynical and as despondent as I can be, I want to say that, you know, 2020 is just but one other episode. It's nothing that our grandfathers and grandmothers haven't seen. Just a different twist. We will continue to survive and thrive and find ways to be creative and self-loving. I, I'm, I'm, assured, I'm assured of it. Uh, but I, we also have to help hold our leaders to account. And I believe we will do that uh, going forward. I'm somewhat optimistic. Uh, I don't envy this new administration because they've got to deal with something that is killing so many thousands of people. And every day that the General Service Administrator um, does not ascertain that Biden won the election and allow the funds for transition, it sets us back further. We are dying as African-Americans disproportionately in this pandemic. So, so something has to be done. I'm optimistic in the sense that more and more of these kinds of conversations are, are popping up. And, and Keith, I commend you for doing this. We've got to continue to have these kinds of conversations and not just with um, brothers like us who are at a, at a point in life when we've been able to establish ourselves and whatnot. I mean, talk to brothers who have not been established and have not achieved in the way we have. I, I, I did that during the campaign. I'm telling you, I spoke to some young brothers, uh, some Gen Zers. I was on a private thing with them. They told me how bad it was. They almost convinced me not to vote. I said, I'm on here trying to talk y'all into voting. voting. Y'all almost talked me out of voting. That's not the way it's supposed to work. But shows like this, conversations like this, Black Men Speak must continue to happen. Otherwise, people are going to continue to exploit us and divide us. And let me just say this in closing. People don't try to exploit and divide that which is not pivotal and important. Mm. So what we as black men have to understand, we are so pivotal and important to this country that we are targeted more than any other group. And so we need to understand our power and our significance in this democracy, get a hold of it and be self-determining self-determining um, in terms of what the outcomes are. Keith, to be very quick, first, thank you for having us on. Thank you for providing this platform. You asked the question of, are you optimistic? And Brother Saladin answered, he was hopeful. And I wanna make this slight distinction. I tend to think of optimism as there is evidence that you can point to that says we're moving in the right direction. Hopeful is a little bit different for me. And I think of Hebrews 11.1, 1, now hope is the substance of, uh, now faith is the substance of things hope for the evidence things not seen. 
So I would say I'm more hopeful than I am optimistic. I don't believe that we're necessarily the country that we would like to allege we are. I think we're an approximation of that as we try to make a more perfect union. We ain't close to perfect. We have a whole lot of more and mores before we get to, to perfect. So I'm more hopeful that we've, since we're turning the corner to borrow the president's term, we're getting past this, we're getting past him. And that's my degree of optimism, but I'm more hopeful that we will get closer to what we allege this country is supposed to be, but we're not there yet. Mo preaching y'all. Yeah, sure is. And I, yeah. And yeah, and kind of as a as a closing, yeah, I agree with all of that. But I do definitely believe, uh, as Mark had said, we we do have to reach down. We got to reach down to our to our brothers. That if, if they're hurting, that means we're we got to do more. As uh, Will had said, to let them know hope is there. Let them know what's going on. That keep working hard and and also have a stance. So thank you, brothers. What a great conversation. You've heard what our panelists said. They are hopeful for the next four years that our country will be headed in the right direction, but we will need to continue to be vigilant on the issues affecting our community. One of the ways is to follow these men on their social media platforms. I'll list how in the show notes. Another way is to follow the Black Men Speak podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Black Men Speak was written and produced by me, Keith Dent, and edited by fellow GU alum, Grace Cho. As always, we like to end with a quote, and this one comes from the late John Lewis. Children holding hands, walking with the wind. That is America to me. Not just the movement for civil rights, but the endless struggle to respond with decency, dignity, and a sense of brotherhood to all the challenges that face us as a nation, as a whole. This is Keith Dent from the Black Men Speak podcast. Peace.